Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I met today's Spirit in Action guests while camping by the Porcupine Mountain Wilderness area of the UP. That UP is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, for those of you from elsewhere around the country. It took but a few minutes of visiting with them to realize that these were two very special people. I soon found out that Birch Kemp and Kinga Uz Kemp are the founders and vital human force behind the Arboretum Detroit. I was immediately intrigued, eager to know more about their project, and at the same time to share some of the light emerging from these luminous workers for world healing. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance, and remember to listen to the full, uncut version of this interview on northernspiritradio.org. Right now, Birch Kemp and Kinga Uz Kemp of Arboretum Detroit join us via Zoom from Detroit, Michigan. Birch, it's great to see you again. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. You too. Great to be here. I still picture you in the uh, maple forest of Presque Isle. It was wonderful meeting both you and Kinga there. Kinga, it's great to see you as well. Very good to see you too, Mark. Have you been other places since we were up by the Porkies? We're talking about Upper Michigan, the UP, as we call it here in Wisconsin. Do you call it UP as equally in the main part of Michigan? Yep. It's always the UP. Yeah. So to answer that question, we took our time getting home, went up in the Keweenaw and Copper Harbor and just continued to sleep on the beach. And we got to see the Aurora Borealis and actually the spirit bear that is up there right now. I don't know if you heard about the spirit bear that's in there. No, I didn't. Where? In the Keweenaw, they're saying Western Upper Peninsula, but I happen to know exactly where that bear is from a very brief sighting. But yeah, that's the first time in Michigan's history, maybe. And the last one outside of the Pacific Northwest was in Wisconsin, I think, in like the early 90s. Really? So I have a friend, Jim Backus. He and his wife are local. They're friends of myself and my wife. But he's a nature photographer. And so he's done a number of trips up to British Columbia, to the region where the spirit bears live. And so he's got just beautiful photography of them. And if he doesn't know about this, I have to call him up as soon as we get off of this interview. And I've got to let him know. I've interviewed him also for Spirit in Action because of his deep connection to that land. Land. Yeah, there's a couple articles. Somebody had a photograph with a trail cam and wouldn't disclose the exact location, but there are pictures out there and there's an article on MLive, which is a Michigan publication, so you can check that out. That's incredible. And right now I'm reading a book, getting ready for a future interview with someone who's, it's a book called The Rescue Effect, but the first 30 pages are all about recovering tigers in India, so Bengal tigers about how you have to protect them from poaching and how they multiply and all of that kind of thing. So my life gets rich with animals. And just two weeks ago, I met a skunk for the first time, let's say sniffing acquaintances. Not a pleasant experience, really, for myself. (laughs) I had to do a lot of cleaning, and there's still things on our clothesline that are losing their skunk smell. (laughs) Wow. 
is it becoming enjoyable as it's more faint or is it <laughs> kind of uh, like the smell? So I wonder, I've never been up close and personal though. But let's get talking about Arboretum Detroit or Arb Detroit as your website goes. You're city dwellers, and most people, I'm pretty sure, have an idea of Detroit as the heavy-duty. I mean, it's Motor City, and motors and cars, they don't go together so well, I would think, in most people's imaginations. But in your minds, what's Detroit really like? Well, it's definitely post-industrial. We still have the freeways to accommodate all the cars that were once here, right? We had a population of 2 million, and now we're struggling to count 700,000. So that means half or more of the houses are gone, which is probably, you know, to give a, a picture for people who haven't been here is a lot of space. Most of us don't have neighbors immediately next door where houses were. There's just vacancy, you know, lots all over the place. Some areas like our neighborhood, there's just fields and fields. People drive through and wonder what happened here, you know? So there was a mass exodus in the late sixties that we call the white flight. You know, it was after the 67 rebellion. Lots of white folks decided to leave the city and just left their property, right? Their, their property became worthless or not worth worrying about. So they left and those houses just kind of sat and sat and decayed. And as the city had resources, they would bulldoze the houses. And now there's a lot of space. And that's really what Detroit has going on currently is open space, kind of like the model for shrinking cities. What do we do with shrinking cities? You know, how long have you been there, Kinga? I moved here 25 years ago when I was 18 years old, so 25, 26 years ago. And what drew you there? This is interesting to me. I mean, the current day, the whole difference between what it was in the 1960s and what it is now. I understand, for instance, there's a pretty vibrant music and art scene there. Yeah. Uh, see, I knew nothing about Detroit when I moved here. I moved here because Birch was here. That's a love story. Well, let's hear the love story. <laughs> Okay, so I give you the brief version because there's a very long version too we, we could go into. But basically, when I was 17 years old, I was still in high school and I came to Saline, Michigan, which is not far from an arbor, about maybe 45 minutes from Detroit, to attend a summer camp for international students. And Birch was a counselor there. So that's how we met. We spent four weeks together in the camp on a very structured environment in a very beautifully, educationally engaging, awesome place. And then when we went home, we started to write letters to each other. So we wrote letters for a year while I was finishing up my last year in high school. And then Birch came to visit me in Hungary. We traveled around a little bit, spent some time together. And then I end of that summer, I came to Detroit to go to Wayne State University for a year. Oh. So sort of my, you know, I had the, the funds from my dad for one year to attend university somewhere else, right, in a foreign country. And so, of course, I chose Detroit. I, you know, I could have been in Australia. Or <laughs> the point was English language because I was focused on English language in uh, high school. That was a focus on studies and I was really getting into English. And so his point was that I have experience in an English-speaking country. My point was I get to go see Birch. <laughs> it looks like you made a great choice. And again, this is coming from Hungary to the United States. The camp that the two of you were at, you, Birch, as a counselor, what was the subject matter of the camp? Well, actually, it's called High Scope Institute for Ideas was the camp. It was really like there's a whole philosophy of education, but I wanted to say that that's the place where I know you're into folk dance. Folk dance was a huge part of the camp, and it was started by Dave and Phyllis Weikert, 
who are kind of, I'd be surprised that you don't know them, but they ran the camp there, but they also ran folk dance retreats. Yeah. Mm. So they converted a big barn, put a nice hardwood floor in there, and it was a a beautiful place. So that was kind of like a focus of the camp was the folk dance. One of the focuses that I think if you think about the philosophy, basically you can sum it up by let's learn from each other, not from one teacher. So the big difference was I'm not teaching you how to do woodworking. We're going to sit around and everybody's going to share what they know about woodworking and together we'll figure out something we want to make together. And especially in a in a setting where you have people from all over the world, this was a very helpful approach because it just set you up to have a very open mind and learn from everybody present in the room. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of mind-blowing. Student choice and divergent thinking creativity. Probably a bit different than my experience when I was 14 and went to Boy Scout camp. It was a beautiful experience for me. I mean, I learned important skills there and all that, but Boy Scouts had these activities and this uh, merit badge that you could earn and so on. Did they have special resources for you there at the camp that you knew you would be able to access, or is this just whoever shows up? Now we'll find out what's here. I feel like it was kind of like that. I don't know that you knew what going in, what was there. You mean as far as for the teachers, resources to teach? or Because there were still leaders, right? And there was a wood shop. There was a painting studio. There was a printmaking studio. So there were things that were sort of there to you know take off from. It wasn't all just make it up in the woods. But you didn't know going in what was going to be there. I just went for the sake of adventure. I kind of understood that I will be speaking English for four weeks and I'll be with a bunch of strangers from all over the world and that we'll be, you know, having fun. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what I understood going in. (laughs) And then when we got there, of course, it became clear that there's a lot of choices in what you want to engage in, but you always be engaging in some kind of learning activity that's also fun at the same time. But it wasn't laissez-faire. It was just you have choices but you're going to be doing something exploratory. So it was exciting. Well, and I was wondering also if there was some essential element that increased the connection between you about trees. Oh, the setting was so beautiful. I mean, we were in the woods, literally. The buildings that we lived in were centered on a little stream, or was it a pond? Both. We were surrounded by woods. So, And we did a lot of things outside as much as we could. We, could, we were outside. So it was really just beautiful. The whole idea of getting an arboretum for Detroit, which, you know, is central to the work that you've been doing and which is bearing fruit. I'm wondering when your connection to trees, the natural world, King, I know you have something of a fungus mushroom expertise. Birch pointed me in your direction when I was asking about some of the mushrooms. Where did that come for each of you? For me, I've just always been drawn to the fringes of the city and the urban, suburban world. Like, where's the wilds, right? Like, I was always drawn to the edges of the train tracks or the bushes that everybody ignored. I felt drawn to those natural spaces where things were allowed to grow wild. And once I realized that I could help steward that, it was like a huge revelation, maybe at age 17, when I planted my first tree and was like thinking, wow, we could have a tree over here, a tree over here. It was really exciting to me to think I could move trees around and like have more trees in the yard. And now my mom's yard is completely forested. 
So for me, it was probably around that age, just climbing trees. I didn't climb trees as a kid, but I climbed trees when I was a teenager and really felt much more connected to trees than to people. So that that would be for me around that age. And then it just kind of snowballed every year. I planted more and more trees and now I'm, you know, at my limit. So I'm helping <laughs> other people plant trees. That's the idea is uh, I can't plant as many trees as I want to, but I can help people plant more trees. Maybe you want to be uh, the equivalent of Wangari Matai? Oh, she's definitely a hero of mine. Yeah. I think we're both too late to, <laughs> to do late as much that. as she did. <laughs> but no, she's she's a huge inspiration and she's the subject of a mural in our tree nursery. Actually, yeah, we visited Kenya because of her. Wow, wonderful. And what about you, Kinga? Where did you find your connection to plants, trees, the outside life. I have no idea what your life in Hungary was like. Did you come with those seeds in you or were they something that was nurtured here? I think both. I'm definitely a city girl. I grew up in Budapest and, you know, it's a big city with two and a half million people and I rode the subway every day. So, but my grandparents lived in the country and so I would spend summers with them and, and I have memories of sitting in the cherry tree all day long and eating cherries and spitting the pits, for example, or, you know, memories of just sitting in quiet in the back of the garden. I also have great memories of going out of the city with my parents and bringing a blanket and a roasted chicken and staying for the day in the meadow, you know, or in the woods. So that happened a lot. I also would go camping and hiking in high school with my friends. And it was just something we did. So I was really familiar with that feeling of being in the forest and being quiet and uh, feeling really peaceful without really knowing or realizing or thinking anything about it. It was just a part of my life. But yet I was a city girl and I did put my trash in the trash bin and it disappeared. And I think that that's where my world kind of turned upside down in a way, in a good way, uh, in a way that started to make things started to make more sense is when I moved here. And I just want to put it as a side note that the first thing I ever heard Birch say was, everybody, after you finish your meal, I want you to scrape it into this bin because I got a compost pile out back and I want to make sure that the food goes in there. <laughs> and that's when I went, who's that? <laughs> it was just one of those foreshadowing moments in my life where actually later as I got to know Birch and especially when I went to live with him and he had a compost pile and I didn't growing up. I mean, I, I, I kind of knew about the trash heap in my grandparents' backyard, but not really. And like, literally I lived with and live, having atheist parents, I like, you are born, you are dead, done, nothing else. Right. So that's how I grew up. And that's partially why I struggled so much when my mom passed, there was no structure for holding that of how do I hold my grief? And also how do I process this? There's no spiritual community. We're born and we're dead and that's it. Good luck. And so I had a really existentialist period in my high school years, you know, just going through that. It was really painful. And so anyway, moving to Detroit as an, as an adult and having a garden, having compost, and it started to kind of make sense so that we don't just start and stop, but we continuously continuing. And that has been a really great healing power that is still teaching me so many things as an adult. And I'm still connecting all the dots and just kind of settling into myself being a human being in a more spiritual context where life has meaning and death has meaning and it's all part of one. And I thank compost for that as turning me onto that and Birch for turning me onto compost and gardening to keep that going and the forest, the virgin forest, especially for holding me in a most beautiful way to show me that that is the truth that helps me live a beautiful life. I think that some people's highest spiritual aspiration is the fact that we are stardust, literally stardust. 
But I'm having a feeling that maybe for the two of you, it might be that we are compost. <laughs> I don't know if that captures any truth for you or not. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> hopefully. I mean, in, a, in an ideal world, we're compost. I mean, in the Western world, unfortunately, we're, you know, sealing ourselves away in Tupperware after poisoning our bodies completely, which takes us out of that cycle. And, you know, it's really a kind of a psychosis. It's like, I think we're living under this, it kind of influences how people People think about life and death because it seems like some kind of a dead end. And it's, it's unfortunate that that's kind of the paradigm for a lot of people in the Western world. How should we be buried or how should we pass and where should we go? And will you have places to bury people by the trees in the Arboretum Detroit? Oh, that's a great yeah, question. I mean, we would a, love to. For sure. That's an aspiration. I really feel like for me, I would I would hope to be buried in the ground and be able to re-enter the natural cycle of things, not taken out of it. And I'm not opposed to cremation, although that's like very heavy on resources to burn a human body, right? And I don't think we can afford to do that for everybody anymore. And it's so much easier just to put us in the ground and plant a tree over us, right? And I can become a peach and I can stand in the sun again and I can photosynthesize something I've never had the opportunity to do in this life. And I look forward to that. So I think, you know, should is a strong word, but in this day and age, I, I don't know that we should be spending, that's a huge carbon footprint to think about, you know, how I'm going to leave. I've had too big of a carbon footprint as, as it is just living in this life. So then in death, ask for all those resources. I'm, I don't think that's a good thing. Definitely not the formaldehyde and the concrete box thing. That's so scary. That feels pretty, um, <clears throat> yeah, constricting to me as well. And I, I hope also to be laid in the ground things growing out of, yeah, I want to fully re-enter, of course. And I don't want to tell anybody else how to do what they want to do. But I think that resources are becoming easier to access, I think, for all of us and how to do that. I think a lot of us probably don't even know that there's an alternative. And it's not like people say, oh, yeah, I want to be pumped with formaldehyde. It's just that we don't think about it because that's just how it is done. And so I appreciate more resources. Yeah, now you can go online and Mm -hmm. buy a sporulated cotton mushroom shroud and be buried in that and uh, to speed up the the process. process. Yeah, Yeah, and how beautiful would that be to uh, not resist the dust to dust, right? Ash, ash to ash. How does that go? Yeah, (laughs) ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, it's you know, it's a part of all kinds of ancient traditions. It's not a new idea. I think it's an old idea. It's the right idea. Yeah, we we're kind of off that path, the logical path. So, again, folks, today we're speaking to Birch Kemp and Kinga Uskemp. They are the forces behind Arboretum Detroit. Birch is the executive director and Kinga is administrator for the nonprofit organization located in Detroit. We're going to get into the details of them, but I'm setting this up because partly I want to find the ideas that drive, motivate, and sustain someone in this kind of work. I'm pretty sure that neither one of you is getting rich in this endeavor, at least not rich in money, which is how far too many people measure progress. And I have a feeling that there's other riches that you are experiencing giving and passing on. So a little bit more. Kinga, since you come from Hungary, this is interesting to me in the differences in philosophy. Part of the thing that is true of the old world is that there's many generations of history that we know about what happened in Hungary and the rest of Europe and Asia and that area. Do you come to Arboretum Detroit to the idea 
with experience with more arboretum type facilities, type uh, locations, type work, type thought, people being more attentive to their footprint than we have in the U.S. U.S. is such a wide open space from the European invasion that there was seen as big empty spaces. We could just put as much garbage on the landscape as we wanted. How is that different for you growing up in Hungary? Well, certainly space and resources were thought of more, I don't know, maybe say efficiently. I mean, you know, when you're used to a certain parameter, then that parameter feels natural. So like the first time I realized that everybody has a car, well, which is not true. That's not actually true, but that that's a standard people want to achieve, that everybody has a car in the US. But you kind of have to, unless the public transportation is really good, because the distances are so great, for example. So that was kind of mind-blowing to me. Let me give you a really good example, a fun example. So you play Monopoly in the United States, right? Right. Right. It's a pretty Which you should know is a game that was pirated from the original inventor was the landlord game and the woman who invented it was quaker to teach the evils of monopoly oh interesting <laughs> and then it got <laughs> anyway yes we play oh, monopoly funny. in the country so i don't know that the two games would be related in the sense that one is inspired by the other at all but there was a game in hungary that i played as a kid and it was called how would you translate that let's say Smart economy, I think, is what What's it was the called. Hungarian, you got to tell us. Oh, it's it's called Gazdakod Okoshan. So, and the point of the game was to get around, to go around the board, and the whole end goal is to furnish an apartment. So, <laughs> Right? Really? So buy, buy your own apartment and be able to furnish it and pay all your bills. <laughs> <laughs> How do you learn these skills for defined parameters where you live? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I've always been drawn to it as a kid, even, and I don't know where that comes from, but I, you know, Swedish design, for example, interior design is all about, well, at least that's what I gathered at that time about it from the magazines that I would read in the, in the libraries is that, you know, how do we take advantage of the most space that we have? How do we create pleasing designs with uh, limited resources or not necessarily in a monetary way, but space and materials and that sort of thing. And, and I think that that appeals to me. I'm, you know, I feel like it's smart and maybe that that comes from growing up in Europe where space was more limited. I don't know, but that's a trait that I have. Yeah, that's really helpful to know that, Kinga. Again, Arboretum Detroit, the website is arbdetroit.org is the website where you want to go. We go to arbdetroit.org instead of Arboretum because the spelling and people's familiarity or lack of with the term Arboretum, we hear so many different, you know, pronunciations, Aberatum and Arboretorium. <laughs> and so we're thinking if people are saying that, they're not going to spell it correctly. So we just go Arb Detroit. And folks, we are speaking today with Birch Kemp, Executive Director of Arboretum Detroit, and Kinga Kemp, who is the administrator for the organization located right there in Detroit, Michigan. This is Northern Spirit Radio, the program Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, just as arbdetroit.org, where we're organic instead of commercial, org instead of com. And on our site, you'll find links to Arboretum Detroit and to all of our guests of the past 17 years we've been doing these programs, many hundreds of people who are doing world healing work. In the second half of our program, we'll get into some of those details. In the meantime, remember to come to our site, follow the links, post comments on this program, and if you feel like it, support us with a donation. 
we're getting our income to carry on this work by what you donate to us. It's not from corporations because whenever you take money from a corporation, there's always strings attached and there's motives that they have for what they want to do. And sometimes they're good motives and sometimes they're bad, but we prefer to depend upon our listeners for our support. So please support us that way and support the 45 stations or so who carry Norton Spirit Radio programming across the country. So please do help them out because they depend upon your hands and your wallet to carry on their very inexpensive but very valuable work. And again, we're speaking to Birch and Kinga. They're right there in Detroit, whereas I'm over in Wisconsin. Two states that have a fair amount of overlap, particularly because of the Upper Peninsula and also Northern Michigan, is has some really beautiful, incredible areas in it as well. It's not all the vision of Motor City that we used to have, which is so dramatically changed. And Arboretum Detroit is both an actuality and an idea that's in birthing. Could you tell me where you are along in your vision of Arboretum Detroit. We're into our fifth year formally as Arboretum Detroit. We've been planting trees a lot longer than that, but formally. We are at 24 lots. We started out with three. That was Tree Detroit 1. That was our first little park. So it seems about every season we do four more. There's a sort of a limit on how many lots we can acquire per year without going before city council, which is nine. So we've been doing nine a year. So that's been our trajectory. We may next year go before city council and do a bigger project. But so each of these lots is, you know, like a 30 by 100 or 150. They're city lots that once had a house and then, you know, have been vacant and mostly mowed a couple times a year by the city, sometimes not mowed, which is interesting because then forests will develop if it's not mowed. Those are some really interesting spaces. So it's hard to know where we are in our trajectory because we don't know exactly where we're going. I'd like to at least do 100, but... Last night, I was thinking about a 1,000. I thought that'd be nice. And there's definitely space for that here. And we've put about 350 trees out into the neighborhood just through neighborhood planting. You know, we offer trees from our nursery for neighbors, but also we've planted about 500 trees into the Arboretum. And what is an Arboretum per se? I mean, obviously it's got tree in the name, but I live in the woods and there's trees all around. What we have here, is this an Arboretum? What makes an Arboretum versus just happen to have trees? That's a good question, right? It seems so deliberate in Arboretum. I think an Arboretum specific to an urban area where we don't have the kind of natural growth that you're talking about, a forest. These are all deliberately planted trees for the most part, whereas the trees around you have all planted themselves, I would think. Maybe there's a few exceptions. So what we're trying to do is create a diversity of trees, lots of examples of different textures and colors and forms, growth habits, a way to compare the various trees and love the trees. So we we have them all together, trees that wouldn't normally grow together, right? We do plant a lot of native trees, but I also have trees from all over the place. Anything that will live here, I'm willing to give it a try and let people get in touch with those trees. Like there are many people in the city who would never be able to see a giant sequoia by going out west, you know, to their natural habitat, but we can grow giant sequoias here. So why not? 
right? Let's see what they're going to do here. I mean, part of that is aesthetic and part of that is climate resiliency. We really don't know what the future holds and what trees are going to want to be here. So I'm going to plant as many as I can and as many different kinds of trees as I can to kind of increase those odds. But in the meantime, we're enjoying a great diversity of trees in the Arboretum. So so specifically planted trees, I think is is a part of that. A park for trees is kind of what an arboretum is to me. We also are committed to engaging people, and that is ever-shifting how it is shaping up and how it will maybe change, but that is definitely a part of our mission, at least, is to help people learn about trees and their importance. And so that happens not just through learning facts, but also through having access to a space where they can experience the trees. And especially in the city, some people tend to have a a resistance to having trees around their house because then it can become a liability. A tree can fall on your house, et cetera, right? Or you might have to, you might think you have to sweep up the leaves and it's extra work. So we encounter that actually in the city quite a bit. And so creating spaces where I can go and sit under a tree. I can cry under a tree. I can draw a tree. I can breathe with the tree. I can learn how to plant it, how to care for it. I can be there, but I don't have to worry about it falling on my house. I think that's a wonderful asset and a way to help people learn to love them and not just think of them as something that litters my front yard. Yeah, that littered the front yard thing. I think one of the worst things that we've done for our civilization in this country is the idea of the lawn. And not that I I don't object at all to having open places where you play, do various activities. That I'm not opposed to that in the slightest. But the idea that what I need is this picture postcard grass that is one and a half inches tall and all of that is just done so much damage to the variety of plants that grow in our country, how we add to the atmosphere and control the well-being locally. It's just so antithetical to the goodness of our own lives. It takes a lot of energy to keep everything mowed, but doesn't take anything to let it all grow. So let it all grow. I was just thinking today, actually, my rising thoughts were, if you think sidewalks are more important than trees, maybe you're living on the wrong planet. (laughs) maybe you know this other planet that we can go to (laughs) plan b right yeah it's the one we're trying to create here i mean it's just that it's just questioning i mean i don't have a problem with somebody thinking about the utility of a sidewalk but who thought that four feet of natural space between the sidewalk and the street was a good idea now right we plant trees there and in 100 years they buckle the sidewalk so now people are I don't want any trees in my neighborhood because it's going to destroy the sidewalks. Well, maybe sidewalks need to be rethought. You know, maybe the front lawn needs to be rethought. It's interesting how that template proliferated throughout this country. Like, where did that start, right? The little suburban yard or the urban yard. And this is why Detroit is so exciting to me is because we have the opportunity to to reinvent that. We don't have neighbors on either side of our house and many Detroiters don't. So, We have space to plant trees and we don't have to worry about the sidewalk and we don't have to necessarily worry about our sewer. The Arboretum is a place where people can come and enjoy the trees and not have to worry about that, right? Because we can plant as big a trees as we want, trees that are going to get huge and there'll be no threat to anybody. They won't fall on a house. They won't destroy the sidewalk. They won't get into the sewers. So it's a way people can sit on a bench and just love the tree. Whereas in their own yard, they might, every time they look at the tree, they're thinking about, oh, the leaves are about to drop. Or look at those roots going into the sidewalk, you know. The default mode of this planet is trees. So for us to think we're going to create spaces without trees is is kind of ridiculous. And that's why I say you're maybe on the wrong planet. 
Is that true for you too, Kinga? That trees is the default nature for this country. I th- I would think it'd be mycelium. Well, I think that it's the same thing. Mycelium and trees are so connected; they cannot live without each other. So I think they're both right, and I, th- I don't think it's true for me. I think it's true. I mean, I think no one can prove otherwise that trees are the basis of life on this planet, and so is mycelium, that they together create life. I mean, we wouldn't be here without them, and that's a scientific fact. I don't know if anyone could ever contest that. Well, I'm also wondering. Again, we're talking about Arboretum Detroit here today, which is when I asked you what an arboretum is, and Kinka just mentioned. Well, forest is an important concept. Is there Detroit forest? There are certainly Detroit parks in a number of places. Where on the continuum is an arboretum from parks, from having trees in your lot to having a forest? Is there a Detroit forest or multiple forests? Where are we? on the spectrum of options for plant life in the city? Thank you for asking this question. It's a very important question. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a lot of forests in Detroit. And as I said, you know, when somebody dumps a truckload of shingles or a bunch of debris into a vacant lot, the mowers can't get to it anymore. So trees will grow up in the first year, you'll have saplings grow up. And the second year, they're big enough where the mowers wouldn't dare to cut them. But These forests grow up all over the city because there's been a lot of dumping. It's not always just dumping, but it's just places where there may be a fence line that the mowers won't get to. So there's a lot of these volunteer forests in the city. The work that we started with the Arboretum was deliberately planting trees on vacant lots. And we're sort of moving to looking for some of these forests to steward in our current project, the Circle Forest Project, which is 12 lots. A third of it is already forested. So I think we're way ahead of the game. If we can steward 40-year-old forests versus planting saplings, you know, we're getting a lot more for our work, you know, in terms of oxygen, shade, carbon sequestration, and places for people to really engage with the forest, not just the trees as specimens. So in the future, I think we'll be moving more towards finding the lots that have the trees and saving those trees and working with the trees that are there. You want to add something to that? Yeah, that we are very excited about this project, the Circle Forest Project, which is actually a native habitat restoration project. And we got a grant from the National Natural Fish and Wildlife Foundation. That's right. Yeah. Um, to carry out this vision for this space because of that, because we were able to look at what was there because there was something there other than just grass. All the other projects started out with a field of crabgrass and some invasives. And so here, it's really moving us in an awesome way too. So there's inspiration to be found there. We'll look at who these specimens are that just came and said, all right, we'll live here. You know, this is clay and some of the soil is really not friendly, but yet they're here and they're they're making life. And so it's helping us look at what's native, what's not native, what is the worth of each how do they relate to each other? Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? Right. And uh, noticing the tendency that we call, well, I don't know that we, but I tend to think of it as the white colonial approach of let's go in and tear it all out and start again, which actually it does happen a lot, you know, in a lot of different contexts and without really us being aware of it. And so going in and starting by looking at what there is and listening and watching. So before we even make a move, 
let's see who's here. And then we see the invasive trees, for example, these big trees that we thought, okay, we're just going to cut the invasive trees out and then leave the native trees and plant some more native trees. However, it's been fun to see how not simple that is, because there might be a a 40-year-old so-called invasive tree like Ailanthus, and there is a family of woodpeckers that live in it, right? Mm -hmm. So then how am I going to cut that tree down, for example? So um, without getting too deep into it, this has been a very fun Yeah, we're not in a position anymore to cut down trees to plant trees. I mean, with climate chaos and climate change, it doesn't make sense to cut down a 40-year-old tree to plant a two-year-old tree. But what about a buckthorn? (laughs) But what about a buckthorn? (laughs) Good question. You got me. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) Uh, There's always exceptions. (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking about, you know, a mature tree. Buckthorn we do have here, and they're scrubby. They create scrubby brush environments where trees wouldn't be allowed to grow. So I'm kind of drawing a line between a tree, a mature tree, a buckthorn. Even though it could be mature, it's still going to be scrubby. It is super invasive. So yeah, there's considerations, right? What's this environment? What if it was only buckthorn and buckthorn offered shade? And Here's a good example of how we're trying to navigate these decisions, right? So English ivy is, uh, is pretty invasive. And that was covering the entire little forest floor when we started out. And it was crawling up the tree trunks as well. And so we just decided that there's no way we can get rid of it. I mean, we, we can't, even if we wanted to, aside from digging it all up or poisoning it all or setting fire to the whole thing. And so we said, let's just pull it back. Let's pull it back and plant natives and let's keep pulling it back and let's pushing it back. So in a way, thinking about it, not as tear it all down and let's start again, or let's get rid of all the buckthorn or all the alianthus, but let's push it back to the point where it can no, it's no longer taking over and let's introduce biodiversity as to the best of our ability. So it's more about, yes, let's plant the two-year-old tree and let's plant it near the 40-year-old invasive so that by the time the two-year-old tree gets big, maybe that invasive tree will come down eventually, but we're not introducing bare ground anywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm really interested on your philosophy of the native species versus the invasive or the imported. Not everything that's imported is invasive in the same way, of course. As you said, a sequoia is not an invasive species, but it can be delightful in and of itself. One of the things I learned actually from David Abaz, who, by the way, I think I mentioned his name to you when we were meeting in the UP in the campground where we were staying, because he and his wife, when they got married, they chose a last name for themselves in the same way that Sandra and I did when choosing Helps Meet. The name they chose is Abaz, which is an indigenous dialect word for trees. So they named themselves trees. And they live in Finland, Minnesota, which is very far north. And they are experiencing in changes in their trees because of climate change. The trees that used to thrive with just a slight change so far in climate no longer survive as well. And so they're dying off and they're seeing actually on their property this change. So I have a feeling there's great wisdom in your practice. You say, okay, what trees are going to come in? The ones that used to be here may not be the ones that survive well in 20 years from now. So we need to provide options for them. What kind of trees would have been native to the area of Detroit that you would say, well, if I just wanted to have an arboretum of native trees, what would I include in it? Uh, Obviously, many different species. 
Yeah. At first, I want to say before we leave that topic that it's just it's just so ironic that humans to call anything an invasive species, right? So for us to be since we are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for us to come in and make decisions about who's invasive and who's not. Mm-hmm. So who's here, you know, lower Michigan is very fertile and there'd be deciduous hardwood forests, oak, maple, some beach. This is called like a wet mesic area. And there's still a few regions like Belle Isle. We have a park that's wet mesic forest. The ground stays pretty moist. You would never have a forest fire. It would be full of, you know, various white and red oak sugar maples. As you go a little bit north of here in Michigan, it starts to be more sandy, right? Where the glaciers scoured the topsoil and left it down here. So it's really sandy. And that's a lot of evergreens, right? A lot of white pine, jack pine, red pine, but also pockets of beaches and and hardwoods too, depending on the, the soil. So we're planting those trees, but we're also planting trees that are native here, but that this is the northern end of their range, like a sweet gum or a black gum tupelo tulip poplar that hopefully in the future will do better here. You know, it's hard for me sometimes, like we plant birches, like paper birches. We're at the southern end of their range. They are native to here, but as the climate warms, they're not going to like it as much, right? So I hesitate to plant birches. Everybody wants to plant birches and our partners in this project are like, yeah, let's plant all the birches. And I'm going to do it, but I know they're going to live 20, 30 years maximum, you know. Well, you have to plant birches because you planted that as your name. I mean, instead of being Andrew, you chose to be birch. Are you fighting your identity to not be pushing for birches? Yeah, because I'm trying to dissolve my own ego. So every time I plant (laughs) birch, I feel like it's an egotistical move. Or maybe you'll be moving up north too. I visit the birches in the UP, (laughs) right? The yellow birches up in the Porcupine Mountains. No, I love birches too. They're they're beautiful. And I think it's, it's sort of comical because I want people to remember my name and Andrew isn't so memorable. But when I say birch, especially in Detroit, I'm the tall, skinny white guy. That goes over. (laughs) So what other native trees? Oh, hackberry is kind of underrepresented. That's a native tree. The cottonwood is native to here. And, you know, they need a lot of room. We have room for them. The sugar maple, we're planting sugar maples up there. Redbud, white pine, of course, Mm -hmm. balsam, cedar. Yeah. Again, folks, today for Spirit and Action, we're speaking with Birch Kemp and Kinga Us Kemp. They are the forces right now, and I don't want to diminish at all all the volunteers and the board members, everything, who are involved with Arboretum Detroit. But I guess you'd say leading the charge are Birch and Kinga, and they're joining us for Spirit and Action. I wanted to talk about the specific programs, projects that you've been doing. You already alluded to, I think, Birch, you mentioned Treetroit 1. Tree Troy 2 underway. There's the nursery, the win-win tree program, and there's Circle Forest. Flesh out what those programs are about. Okay, well, the nursery is designed to be a space where we can grow trees for neighbors to come and dig up a tree and plant it in their yard. Borrow a wheelbarrow and a shovel. You don't have to get in the car. You don't have to buy a tree. They're all right here. So that's been encouraging a lot of tree planting in the neighborhood. And that also allows us to grow trees to move into the Arboretum. Tree Troy 1 and Tree Troy 2 are little parks on the corner, four lots with a couple of benches, 50 or 60 trees. I'm trying to limit myself. I tend to plant lots of trees. I think in this time, we need to plant more densely and not to get too far off topic, but we talked about what is a forest, what is an Arboretum. When we plant trees, we plant them in groups. 
I like to think of them as families. I don't want to plant any trees by themselves, right? Because they support each other through the mycorrhizal network. And we talked about that a little bit. So these parks kind of demonstrate that they each have a theme. Tree Troy 2 is a white pine park because the only thing standing in that park was this one 60-year-old white pine that was planted by a neighbor. So our first thought was, let's give her some children, you know, let's create a family. So we planted seven or eight white pines around her and went from there. Tree Troy 1, we built a little hill and we decided because the only trees that were on that spot were these three spruces, blue spruces that are mature. And we thought, let's plant in trios. So we planted three red maples, three ginkgos, three river birches, three paper birches, three this, three of that. So that got to be this like trios. There's the Circle Forest, which is as big as a football field and is the native restoration project that already has a forest. And well, that's like, you know, going back to your question about what is a park, what is an arboretum, it is like a park. We don't have playground equipment, but it's a park where there's a large fire pit and we gather to make music. We gather to watch birds. Um, There's a forest critter path that goes through the forest that's some of the trees that we did cut down, we sliced in half so that there's a flat surface and we use the stumps to create an elevated path for the kids to enter the forest without walking on the ground. So it's a really neat kind of undulating, swooping path that goes all through that forest. So in that sense, it is like a playground, but there's nothing plastic. There's nothing that's not natural there because any wood that we did cut down, we kept on site to be nurse logs and to you know further the forest. I'm probably getting a little bit astray from the original question. No, I think you're doing yeah. good. Yeah. Because you're describing what Circle Forest is and it's a... Uh... And Circle Forest has taken us into programming, which at first we're just like, plant trees, plant trees, create beauty, sit on a bench, come on. And now we're like leading bird walks and doing fungus workshops and we're doing the Circle Forest Jam every couple months and what other programming? Get, we you had know, poetry. We were engaging with a summer camp that is in not too far from us whose leaders were interested in doing something in Circle Forest with the children. And so we partnered with a third organization who provided the access to poets and uh, songwriters who came and did a workshop with the children in the Little Forest setting. It's one thing to kind of describe it, but it's another thing to sit in there and be there and watch it happen. And it kind of clicks. Like I sat there, I was there to take pictures and participate. Everybody who left there that day was pumped, you know, just feeling so good. And everybody kept saying, this was so great. And I want to do this again. And Mm -hmm. it's just that all those things coming together of being under the trees in the dappled sunlight, engaging in something such as singing a song or writing poetry or just talking to each other, and you walk away like a fresh new person. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful. Well, we have a symbiotic relationship with the plants of this planet. Some people think that maybe we are the highest form of creation here, but in fact, maybe we're just here to provide carbon dioxide for the trees. You know, I mean, we have an egocentric point of view, but it's not necessarily the right one. It may be just what we see from the place where we happen to be sitting. So you have all of these different events. If people go to arbdetroit.org, they'll find just recently you've had the other Earth Day tree planting. Yeah. So why have one Earth Day? That's a ridiculous concept. I love Earth Day and I celebrate it to the fullest. But every time I say, what are we doing here? Right. One day. So we're going to start other Earth Day. It's going to be the fall Earth Day. 
and then we'll go with quarterly Earth days, and then we'll go with monthly Earth days, and then we'll go with weekly Earth days, and then pretty soon we'll have everybody understanding that every day is Earth Day. Absolutely, yeah. And you've got your win-win tree work day. I'm actually not quite sure what a nursery is for trees. I mean, how do you nurse them? Are they indoors, outdoors? What do you do as a nursery for trees? Great question. Well, lots of folks have trees that come up in their yard underneath their ginkgo or their oak and their tiny saplings, and they don't want to kill them. So they dig them up and they donate them. I also will purchase saplings, bare root saplings from a bigger nursery. Maybe they're 12, 24 inches tall, plug them in in rows where we give them this, like, you know, the best care that they can for the first couple of years. And then after a couple of years, we'll dig them out and move them. So it's just a place to really give them really close attention and make them available for other people. I also saw on your site, again, arbdetroit.org, morning bird walk, the kids program, you had the owl prowl. I don't know which kinds of owls you have there. We have a lot of barred owls here where I happen to live and a lot of other kinds of things. And we do have lots of woodpeckers, including pileated and everything else that we see regularly out right outside this window and who are regularly tapping on trying to eat our wood house. I prefer they eat trees, but you know, whatever. I, I understand they've got their own leanings. So you've got all of these different programs going on. I know that both of you practiced as Buddhists. Do you also have meditations in your Arboretum areas, your Tree Troit 1 and 2? It seems to me it would be a perfect place. Not only Druids, but I think the Buddhists should be sitting. So we would have meditations in the Arboretums if we didn't have a temple specifically for meditation already in the neighborhood. It's right across the street from Tree Troit 1, and most people don't distinguish between the two. There's a street there, but they just think it's all part of the same project. So They look very similar. You know, there's no building on, on the temple grounds. We sit outside. We sit there once a week, every Sunday, 10 starting 10 o'clock. This is a project that we are involved with because we attend and we support and we're on the board, but it is actually led by a friend, Sarah Adai. The name is Field Temple and it does have a website, fieldtemple.org. And Sarah is the teacher, the Dharma teacher who holds the meetings, the practices. I know what Mark's thinking. I can interview Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> she'd be a great one to interview. She it's it's really cool to see what's happened when we just started sitting out there. And now 14, 15 people will sit every Sunday. It started out with just a couple of us freezing our butts off out there in January, you know, and people <laughs> driving by going, what? You know, <laughs> snow building up on our heads. But it's really been awesome to not have a physical structure to just sit out in the field. So, yeah. My first glimpse that Detroit was not the urban motor city that I had always visualized it as being was a few years ago when I interviewed Sigrid Christensen. She's a musician there in Detroit, and her 2019 release was called Little Vixen. And that title track of that album was specifically because of the foxes she saw living right near her property. And I had never thought of foxes growing in Detroit. It definitely opened up my mind that this is not just Motor City, as I had thought before. And so how much have you been bringing music into your programming and into the energy for Arboretum Detroit? 
We have had a family music workshop. A wonderful artist in Detroit, Audra Kubat, songwriter, has a gift of leading workshops with people and crafting songs on the spot from inspiration of the participants and collaborating with the participants. So we did that a couple of times, once for families with children and once specifically with the summer camp that I mentioned earlier. We also have a more informal gathering that's about every month or so. We actually just had the last one not too long ago for the season where we make a fire and we bring drums or sticks or guitars, whatever, bring an instrument. We call it Circle Forest Jam. And it literally is that, is uh, connecting with the energy of the forest with the instruments and our voices. And again, is there a point in which you're going to put up a sign that says Arboretum Detroit? Is this the Arboretum or is that not an end point or Arboretums Detroit? I'm not sure when you'll have achieved the thing maybe where the city council says, yes, we bless this and now you can go more than nine lots per year or whatever. Yeah, for sure. That'll happen. And there are signs at the different locations, but it has been interesting to try and connect those for people who don't know what the Arboretum is, right? It's not contiguous. There's a spot over here, a spot over here. They're all on the same street, though. They're all on Elmwood. So if you cruise Elmwood, you'll see, and there are some things that kind of unify boulders, the signage, the benches, the diversity of trees, the density of trees. But it'll never be just one place, you know, it'll be, it makes me think of how actually with the Field Temple and with some of the other projects in the neighborhood, Fungi Freights and Potager, there's some other entities in the neighborhood who are working with open space, you know, green spaces. And even the church that we live behind, St. Hyacinth is a Catholic church, old Polish church that's still active. So they have this huge parking lot that really is only full a few times a year and I think somewhat due to our influence and what's going on around the church, because we're all around, we've been converting these vacant lots into usable green space. They are talking about depaving half of their parking lot and creating a bioswale and planting some trees. So they're connecting. So, you know, I mean, like formally, what is the Arboretum isn't as important as you enter this magical green space. I mean, it's pretty clear when people come through the neighborhood, it looks different, right? Like, oh, that's not quite a park, but it does have a path that invites me in. There's a boulder to sit on. Hmm. Like it's, you feel it, right? But to answer the question more literally, we will eventually have signs that are more unified that welcome people into the space and explain what it is. But we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. We're working on what that looks like. Well, just four or five years into the work of formalizing this is still young, but still so obviously vibrant. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Birch Kemp and Kinga Uskemp of Arboretum Detroit website, arbdetroit.org, the links on northernspiritradio.org. Birch and Kinga, just thank you so much for your work. Thank you for nurturing the world. And thank you for being such pleasant neighbors when we were up in the woods in the UP. For sure. Yeah. Honor to be here. Mm -hmm. Honor to be here every day. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about the Arboretum since we love it so much. <laughs> so folks, please do visit arbdetroit.org. Cruise down Elmwood, hopefully on your bicycles, just like Birch and Kinga would do, of course. Visit and connect with the trees and the environment in Detroit and just be part of nurturing it wherever you are planted. Thank you so much again, Birch and Kinga. Thank you.
Thanks, everybody, for joining us for Spirit in Action, and join us next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh